This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. This episode features discussions of domestic violence and child abuse that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. It was the spring of 1984, and Johns Hopkins graduate student Ana Belen Montez was under the gun. Despite working full-time for the U.S. Department of Justice, Anna was unable to pay off her tuition fees. As a result, the university was now threatening to hold her degree hostage. And as if school, work, and money problems weren't enough, the 27-year-old grad student had world affairs weighing on her mind. She was worried about the war in Nicaragua, Leftist revolutionaries there were under attack by anti-communist Contras backed by her own country's government. Anna was furious at the U.S. for intervening in Nicaragua. In her view, America didn't care about helping the people. They were simply there to promote their own interests. And as a result, innocent Nicaraguans were dying. For months, Anna had been speaking out on the problem in class and writing about it in academic papers, but nothing changed. Between her country's refusal to back off the Nicaraguans and her school's insistence on withholding her degree, it seemed to the beleaguered student that bullies always got their way. But then one day, Anna was approached by a fellow student, Marta Rita Velazquez. Marta heard Ana speaking on U.S. policy in Nicaragua and felt they had a lot in common. She asked Ana if she would be willing to meet a few friends who needed help translating news articles from Spanish to English. Ana readily agreed. She was eager for an opportunity to help the less fortunate. But as it turned out, Marta's so-called friends were actually Cuban intelligence, and they had a much bigger job for Anna in mind. Picture 
picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're covering Ana Belen Montez, We'll see how life with an abusive father led her to become a crusader for the defenseless. We'll explore Anna's time in graduate school when her vocal disagreement with American foreign policy made her a prime recruit for Cuban intelligence. Next week, we'll follow Anna's simultaneous rise as a Cuban spy and a double agent analyst for the U.S. Department of Defense. We'll see how her younger sister, working for the FBI, took part in the investigation that eventually led to Anna's undoing. And we'll see how Anna, known in the intelligence community as the Queen of Cuba, was dethroned after a reign of 17 years. Ana Belen Montez was born on February 28, 1957, to a middle-class couple on a U.S. Army base in Nuremberg, Germany. Ana's mother, Emilia Montez, was a Hispanic activist. Her father, Alberto, was an esteemed military psychiatrist. Both were natives of Puerto Rico, a Caribbean island nation about 300 miles off the east coast of Cuba. Since the Spanish-American War during the late 1800s, Puerto Rico has been a U.S. territory. As a result, the Montez couple had dual status as both Puerto Rican and U.S. citizens, and Ana Belen Montez was born into a world of conflicting loyalties. Ana's father, Alberto, was proud of his American status, but he also strongly believed that Puerto Rico should be an independent nation. He wrote numerous letters and articles arguing for a peaceful separation of his homeland from the United States. Although his writings had negligible impact, they established Dr. Montez as a strong political voice in the Puerto Rican-American community. Likewise, Ana's mother, Emilia, was politically active. She made a career of advocating for minority rights and was a respected proponent of Hispanic causes. Both Emilia and Alberto worked within the system to create change. Their views were progressive, but they were far from radical. In fact, in their personal lives, Ana's parents were relatively conservative. They were devout Catholics who regularly attended Mass. Alberto, as the patriarch, was the uncontested head of the family. 
and although Amelia worked outside the home, she took on the traditionally female responsibilities of child-rearing. Above all, Alberto and Amelia were devoted to social order, and they expected their daughter to maintain the status quo. Before we continue with Anna's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. A 2014 study conducted by Cambridge University found that children who grow up in politically active homes are likely to adopt their parents' beliefs early on. They also have a greater tendency than their peers to get involved in public affairs later in life. However, as political scientist Elias Dinas pointed out, a significant change occurs when these budding activists grow older. Dinas wrote, The children who are most likely to initially acquire the political views of their parents are also most likely to later abandon them as a result of their own engagement with the political world. In other words, Emilia's and Alberto's strong beliefs may have initially shaped young Anna's worldview, but the example they set as activists might have inspired their daughter to later forge her own, more radical path in life. The family moved often throughout Anna's childhood due to Alberto's job as a military psychiatrist. In 1958, when Anna was only a year old, they moved from Germany to an army base in Knoxville, Iowa. A few years later, Alberto was transferred again to Topeka, Kansas. During this time, he and Amelia had three more children, making Anna the eldest of four. Finally, in 1967, when Anna was 10 and her siblings Lucy, Tito, and Juan Carlos were 9, 5, and 3, respectively, Alberto retired from the military. He moved his family one last time to Towson, Maryland, a pleasant, tree-lined suburb of Baltimore. There, he and Amelia bought a spacious ranch-style home. Emilia went to work for the Commission for Equal Opportunity in Employment, while Alberto established a private practice in psychiatry. To all outward appearances, the Montez family was living the American dream. But behind closed doors, life in their Towson home was sometimes more like a nightmare. For years, Dr. Montez had imposed his personal worldview on his children via strict discipline. And now, whenever Anna or her siblings displeased him, he responded in force, sometimes just shouting at the kids, but often striking them or whipping them with a belt. According to sociologists Murray A. Strauss and Anita K. Mother, Corporal punishment was used in more than 90% of American homes during the 1960s. So Dr. Montez was far from alone in his belief that it was a productive way to correct children's behavior. But as doctors Strauss and Mother point out, extensive studies found across the board that children who experienced corporal punishment encountered serious problems later in life. They could become aggressive, have difficulty learning, or grow dependent on drugs and alcohol. They also sometimes engaged in criminal behavior. The beatings infuriated Anna, 
Even worse, she was traumatized by the knowledge that her little siblings were being beaten as well. Young Anna wasn't the only one who witnessed Alberto's alleged abuse. His wife, Emilia, also heard her children's cries. And as the years went by, she realized that her husband's behavior must be stopped. The question was how. As a Catholic, she'd been taught that marriage was a sacred covenant that could not be broken. She'd also been told that her husband was the head of the family. So it seemed to Amelia that the only way to solve the problem was by persuading Alberto to change. Nevertheless, as the years went by, her pleas fell on deaf ears. In 1972, after five years in Towson, she convinced her husband that it was time to separate. The rift must have come as a relief to 15-year-old Anna, who by now was a sophomore at Lock Raven High School. She went on to ace her junior and senior years, graduating with a near-perfect 3.9 grade point average. In her senior yearbook, the teen noted that her favorite things were summers, going to the beach, and having a good time with fun people. Sounds like an average teenager. And that's basically what Ana Belen Montes was. And yet, as the daughter of two bilingual, politically active dual citizens, she couldn't help but be aware of the wider world. And despite the somewhat frivolous comment in her senior yearbook, she was serious about finding a way to make a difference. In 1975, 18-year-old Anna was accepted to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, a public institution founded in 1819 by Thomas Jefferson. The liberal arts college was about a four-hour drive from Anna's home. Outside the bubble of her family for the first time, Anna threw herself into her studies. She majored in foreign affairs with a concentration in Latin America. This would have been an ambitious course under any circumstances, but for Anna, it was especially so. In addition to studying, she took on a part-time job. We don't know with certainty if Anna had to support herself or perhaps chose to work to scale back her father's financial support and influence in her life. Either way, she was a waitress at the university's food services catering office. While Anna's classmates were out having fun on the weekends, she was busy serving the university's faculty and distinguished guests. For someone who'd been raised by a psychiatrist and an office worker, this must have been a striking experience. Anna was no longer a member of the society she'd been born and raised in. She was now part of the working class. And she may have preferred it that way. According to social psychologist Anthony S.R. Manstead, working-class people are typically more empathetic than middle- and upper-class individuals. They're also statistically more likely to help others in distress. After growing up in a home where her pain was routinely denied, Anna may have found solace in a community where she received greater comfort and support. Unfortunately, her economic status wasn't the only thing changing. In 1976, when Anna was 19, her mother announced that she and Alberto were finally getting a divorce. 
Anna was stunned by the news. On the one hand, she probably agreed with her mother's decision, but on the other, it brought to mind old worries about her siblings' fates. Lucy was 18 and had just started college, but 15-year-old Tito and 12-year-old Juan Carlos were still living at home. Once again, Anna could do little but watch and wait as her parents settled their differences. Alberto fought bitterly for custody rights, but in the end, the court ruled in Emilia's favor. She also was awarded ownership of their Maryland home. Alberto lost control of the family once and for all. But the stress of her parents' divorce, her studies, and paying the bills took a toll on Anna. In response, she hardened her resolve. She'd always been determined to live her own truth. Now she took that to another level. In 1978, the 21-year-old foreign affairs student traveled nearly 4,000 miles away from her home to spend a year studying in Madrid, Spain. She wanted to improve her Spanish and learn more about the world. In fact, Anna was about to find a community of students just like her, young people who were sick of being pushed around and who were getting ready to fight back. Coming up, we'll see how a year abroad transformed Anna from a hardworking college student into a political firebrand. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. 21-year-old Ana Belen Montez was in a time of transition. After her parents went through a vicious divorce, she applied to a study abroad program in Madrid, Spain, where she continued taking classes while working two jobs to support herself. Clearly, Ana had enough keeping her busy, but she also found time for socializing. She made friends with politically-minded Spanish-speaking students from around the world, Many of them were leftists, and some opened her eyes to a side of American politics that she had never seen. Anna knew from her studies that the 1970s were a turbulent time for Latin America, an era of popular uprisings, democratic revolts, and sudden regime changes. What she didn't yet realize was that her country had been involved in the upheaval. In Madrid, Ana met a radical Argentinian man who was determined to open her eyes. While we don't know the name of this fiery young activist, it's clear he had a strong impact on Ana's political beliefs and her future. 
His lessons instilled Anna with a righteous rage against her fatherland. According to Anna's friend and fellow student, Anna Colon, she and the young man went to several anti-American demonstrations together. After each one, Anna rushed back to tell Colon about the atrocities the U.S. was committing in other countries. It was as if the bullying and violence she had witnessed at home were being played out on a world stage. Anna may have been aware of this emotional connection, but it may also have been an unconscious reaction to the unresolved trauma of growing up in what she saw as an abusive household. According to licensed clinical social worker Kate Hurley, bullying can have negative short-term and long-term consequences. Among the long-term consequences Hurley describes are emotional disturbance and PTSD. While we don't know exactly what Anna and the Argentinian discussed, it's possible that their conversations triggered Anna's post-abuse trauma. And as a result, she became not just a believer, but a crusader for the rights of those who suffered oppression as she once had. After her year abroad, Anna returned to finish her schooling at the University of Virginia. She may have been back on home soil, but mentally, she was still a world away. Her senior year, she pursued independent studies in Puerto Rican politics, perhaps seeking connections between her background and what she'd learned in Madrid. She wrote an essay on current political conditions in Puerto Rico and the impact they might have on the international community. After graduating in 1979, she sent the paper to Virginia Senator John Warner. Clearly, the 22-year-old was looking for ways to make her voice heard. That summer, Anna moved in with an aunt in Puerto Rico and got a job as a receptionist for a law firm in the capital city of San Juan. About eight weeks later, she took a better position in administration at Sacred Heart University. And only a few months after that, Anna applied for a clerical job with the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. All told, Anna had less than a year of office experience, but she impressed her supervisors with her work ethic and outstanding drive. Between their recommendations and her own strong academic performance, Anna was awarded the position. That fall, she relocated to Washington, D.C. to begin working for the Department of Justice's Office of Privacy and Information Appeals. She started out as a typist, but once again, her dedication and attention to detail made Anna rise to the top. Within a few months, Anna's supervisor recommended her for a paralegal training program. And in March of 1980, 23-year-old Anna was granted top-secret security clearance. In an industry that trades in sensitive information, this was practically unheard of. But Anna was so focused and such a hard worker that her supervisors instinctively trusted her. They relied on her to do difficult jobs and to get them done right. Anna, a rising star, rarely, if ever, disappointed. 
For the next few years, she worked as one of three paralegal experts in the nation who specialized in the 1974 Freedom of Information and Privacy Act. In this position, Anna reviewed public requests for information. She pored over the requested documents line by line to determine whether anything in them was classified or confidential. And if so, she made the call on what should be redacted. Clearly, this was a position that required a high level of responsibility, and Anna continued to excel. But she also still felt an urge to be making a bigger, more tangible impact on the world. She just didn't know how. Yet. Eventually, Anna did what just about any other 20-something with vague yearnings would do in this situation. She went back to school. In September of 1982, 25-year-old Anna enrolled in a graduate program at the prestigious Johns Hopkins University. For the next two years, while working full-time at the DOJ, Anna also attended classes toward a master's degree in advanced international studies. She decided to focus on Nicaragua, a small Central American country in which the U.S. currently had major interests. Back in 1979, the year after Anna graduated from college, the civil war in Nicaragua came to a dramatic climax. After more than a decade spent fighting military dictator Anastasio Somoza, the Sandinistas, a group of left-wing rebels, managed to drive him out of power. Anna considered this a victory for the Nicaraguan people, and as far as she was concerned, the Sandinistas were heroes. But the United States government disagreed. The Reagan administration strongly opposed the Sandinistas' communist politics, and they used various tactics, including illegal arms sales, to try to remove the Sandinistas from power. As far as Anna was concerned, this was bullying, pure and simple. She was incensed at her country's decision to meddle in another nation's war. Not to protect the helpless, but to advance its own interests. And she wanted everyone to know how she felt about it. During her years at Johns Hopkins, Anna spoke out against U.S. policy decisions on Nicaragua. She wrote papers, gave speeches, and joined protests on behalf of the Sandinistas. Despite the fact that neither she nor her ancestors were Nicaraguan, Anna took up the cause of the oppressed, just as she had when she once wanted to defend her helpless siblings against her father. However, in May of 1984, the 27-year-old activist was temporarily sidelined by some frustrating news from the university. Despite all odds, working a full-time job, Anna had completed her coursework at Johns Hopkins, but she was unable to pay off the last few thousand dollars that she owed for tuition. As a result, Johns Hopkins was refusing to grant her a degree. To a hard-working and passionate advocate of the people, this too must have felt like an abuse of power. 
After all, Anna had already paid tens of thousands of dollars to the university. Clearly, they didn't need the money. In her view, it was just one more example of the powerful taking advantage of the weak. Anna wasn't having it. Instead of bowing to Johns Hopkins, she simply blew them off. She began applying for jobs in the summer of 1984, stating that she had a master's degree. Technically, this was untrue. But as far as Anna was concerned, the lie was completely justified. While she was busy looking for her next move, Anna met fellow grad student Marta Rita Velazquez. 26-year-old Marta had heard Anna speak about Nicaragua and was impressed by her views. She had some friends who needed help translating Nicaraguan news articles from Spanish to English, and she wondered if Anna was willing to help. Anna readily agreed. She started meeting up with Marta regularly, chatting about the many things the two women had in common. They shared Puerto Rican roots. Both held government positions. Marta worked for the U.S. Department of Transportation as an attorney advisor, and both were passionately interested in Latin American politics, with a strong dislike of American foreign policy. Given how well the two women clicked, it's no wonder that Anna agreed to accompany Marta to New York City to meet a friend for dinner in December of 1984. And it's also not surprising that Anna trusted this acquaintance of Marta's implicitly. What did come as a shock, to Anna at least, was that the person she met that evening wasn't a friend of Marta's at all. He introduced himself as an officer of the Cuban Intelligence Service. Marta revealed that she was actually a recruiter for the agency. And they wanted to engage Anna as a Cuban spy. Coming up, we'll see how the hard-working, straight-laced Ana Montes trained to become a secret agent for Fidel Castro's regime. Now, back to the story. In December of 1984, 27-year-old Ana Belen Montes agreed to travel with her friend Marta Velasquez to New York City to meet a friend for dinner. When they arrived, however, the man introduced himself to Ana as an officer of Cuban intelligence. Over the course of a quiet dinner, the official convinced Ana she had a role to play on the international stage. With her education, work ethic, and high-level security clearance, she could gain access to top-secret information. And if she shared that information with the Cubans, they could use it to assist the disadvantaged people Ana cared so much about, the Nicaraguans. This may sound like a bit of a stretch to the average listener, but to Ana, it made perfect sense. She knew the Cubans supported the Sandinistas, and they also had a history of standing up to the very people Ana saw pushing the Nicaraguans around, the United States government. Back in 1959, communist revolutionary Fidel Castro 
toppled a brutal U.S.-backed dictator in Cuba. In response, the Americans had tried everything they could think of to remove the communist Castro from power. They had even attempted to assassinate the leader by using poison pills and exploding cigars. When those and similar efforts failed, the United States cut off all diplomatic and economic ties with the island. Their intention was to isolate the Cubans until their need for outside help became so great that they would rise up and overthrow Castro themselves. It didn't work. 25 years later, Fidel Castro was still president of Cuba, and to Ana, that made him and his people heroes. She said yes to the unpaid offer that very night. In December of 1984, Ana Montes, who had never been to Cuba, volunteered to become a Cuban spy. It must have been strange for the 27-year-old to spend the holidays with her family that year. She'd just verbally committed to become an undercover agent, putting her life on the line for people she'd never met. It may have been tempting to share her secret with the siblings she'd once failed to protect. But Anna knew that, of all people, her family must be the last to know about her decision. After all, as an agent for a foreign government, Anna and her family were now on opposite sides of the law. Coincidentally, both Anna's sister Lucy and her brother Tito were embarking on new careers with the FBI. Lucy was a language analyst in the Miami office, which meant that she monitored conversations of Spanish speakers under investigation. Ironically, this included a large number of Cubans, the very people with whom Anna had just aligned herself. The fledgling spy must have realized that to meet her commitment, she was going to have to cut herself off from the world. Family, friends, and lovers would all have to be kept at arm's length. From this point forward, Anna's number one focus would be her mission. It's important to note that despite her intentions, Anna had no control over how the intelligence she provided would be used. And though her goal may have been to help the Nicaraguans, the Cubans could well have had other plans in mind. After all her years studying foreign affairs and working for the Department of Justice, Anna should have known this. But if so, she chose to overlook it a fact which suggests she had strong emotional reasons for becoming a spy. According to Dr. Ursula M. Wilder, there are typically three motivating factors behind a person's choice to commit espionage. Dysfunctions in the personality, a state of crisis, and ease of opportunity. Spies frequently have pathological features that pave the way to espionage, such as thrill-seeking, a sense of entitlement, or a desire for power and control. At the time he or she initiates the espionage, it appears the logical decision to solve a problem. Anna had been banging her head against the problem of how to stop the U.S. from bullying other countries for years. And after her turbulent childhood, she certainly may have felt a need for control. 
Perhaps these two factors were so overwhelming that they caused Anna to overlook the reality that she was committing a crime for people she didn't really know. Of course, deciding to spy is only the first step, and Anna still had a long way to go. After the holidays, she went back to work at the DOJ, her attention divided between her job and thoughts of her undercover future. And as the new year unfolded, she made plans with Marta to go to Cuba for training. This was easier said than done. Back in 1985, travel between the U.S. and Cuba wasn't just expensive, it was illegal. Commercial flights between America and the island didn't exist. Limited charter flights were available, but their passengers were closely monitored. An obvious disadvantage for someone on her way to spy school. Because of these conditions, Anna and Marta's journey was long, indirect, and above all, secret. In March of 1985, when Anna was 28, they flew from Washington, D.C. to Madrid, carrying luggage as if they were going on vacation. Then, upon arriving in Madrid, Anna and Marta met a Cuban agent who provided them with fake passports. Anna accepted the falsified document, knowing that it was illegal, but she was on a mission, and by now, that was all that mattered. In her first experience using a cover identity, Anna presented the passport at the airport to get from Madrid to Prague in what was then known as Czechoslovakia. There, she and Marta met two more Cuban agents who presented them with more fake passports and a wardrobe appropriate for the Caribbean. At last, after almost two weeks of travel, Anna saw her destination for the first time. Much of what happened during their time in Cuba remains secret, but we know enough to paint a general picture. Upon landing, the 28-year-old trainee and her recruiter were probably received by Cuban intelligence. They were then driven to their next location, which may have been a military base. Along the way, Anna caught a glimpse of life on the island, Perhaps not surprisingly, what she saw confirmed her belief that people were suffering there directly because of bad U.S. decision-making. She connected the poverty and repression she saw to the American policy of isolating the island. As a result, she felt more strongly than ever that she was making the right choice. Once Anna and Marta reached their destination, the training began. Anna was taught that her objective was to collect classified information and to pass it on to a handler in Washington. To receive communications from Cuba, she was given a special high-frequency radio and instructed on how to use it to receive encrypted messages. She also learned how to decode these missives with a numerical decryption system. Finally, Anna was trained on how to pass a polygraph. A polygraph, or lie detector test, monitors a subject's heart rate, respiration, and skin conductivity while he or she is responding to a series of questions. First, the test administrator establishes a baseline by asking simple, known facts. 
As the exam progresses, the investigator probes more deeply, measuring the subject's responses against the established baseline. Theoretically, lying causes a physical change. A person's heart beats faster, their breathing speeds up, or they start to sweat. But according to the American Psychological Association, this theory is far from proven. In fact, psychologist and physician Leonard Sachs argued in 1991, the idea that we can detect a person's veracity by monitoring psychophysiological changes is more myth than reality. The trick, apparently, lies in people's beliefs about the polygraph itself. If a subject is convinced that the test works, they're likely to be nervous when telling a lie. On the other hand, if a person knows the exam is fallible, they may gain the cool confidence to deceive the examiner without detection. Perhaps this was the most valuable asset Anna possessed as a spy. The 28-year-old had always been somewhat emotionally detached. By leaning into that trait, she could learn to control the anxiety of living a double life and convince everyone around her that she was only who she claimed to be. After about two weeks on the island, a newly trained Anna and her recruiter, Marta, made their long journey home. They returned to Prague using one fake identity, then traveled to Madrid using another. After a day or two posing for photos, documenting their so-called vacation, the pair flew back to Washington using their real identities again. Ana Montez may have been back to using her old name, but she was a new woman. From here on out, she cut off contact with nearly everyone in her life, except her mother and siblings, and she immediately started looking for a position that would get her access to the kind of information the Cubans wanted. Thanks in part to her high-level security clearance, the search didn't take long. In June of 1985, Anna heard about a job at the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA. Part of the U.S. Department of Defense, the DIA collects and analyzes military intelligence to support battle planning and operations. This didn't seem like the type of job that American warmongering protester Anna would have wanted, but it was exactly the kind that Cuban spy Anna needed. Anna applied to the DIA with her recruiter, Marta, listed as a government reference. Then she awaited the results. In September of 1985, the DIA hired Ana Montes as an intelligence research specialist with an emphasis on Nicaraguan politics. In this role, she was responsible for collecting and packaging raw information related to Nicaraguan people, policies, and foreign affairs. She would then turn around and share that information with the Cuban government. On September 30th, 1985, Anna woke in her two-bedroom co-op in the Cleveland Park District of Washington, D.C. She dressed in conservative business attire and made her way to the Defense Intelligence Agency headquarters, about half an hour away. 
she entered the long, low, black-mirrored glass building. Her heart must have been pounding. After all, this wasn't just Anna's first day on the job. It was also her first day as a real international spy. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Ana Montez's story. We'll follow her professional ascent from an entry-level research specialist to the intelligence community's Queen of Cuba. We'll also see how her own sister contributed to her downfall and how the Queen remained unrepentant to the end. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Megan Dane, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson.